Let us turn now for our scripture reading to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. Luke 2, we'll read the first 20 verses. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over the flock, their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you, you will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloth, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So it was when the angel had gone away from them into heaven, that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. I noted in our bulletin that our our text this morning is uh, the last part of verse 16 that simply speaks of the babe lying in a manger. We're going to be looking at this in connection with Rome, uh, Proverbs chapter 8. I'm not going to read through that chapter now, but if you wish, uh, you're invited to turn to that chapter. I will be reading from it extensively in the course of uh, this morning's sermon congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, three times we read uh, of uh, our Lord Jesus at his birth, described as a babe or a baby lying in a manger. Uh, first of all, this describes uh, Mary's action. After having given birth to Jesus, she wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. And then that is... Uh, Included in the sign that the angels gave to the shepherds that they would find this babe lying in a manger. And then thirdly, we're told in verse 16 that indeed that is what they saw. They found uh, this babe lying in a manger. And this morning we want to look intently by faith on this fact, on this detail of uh, of what is often called the Christmas story. I suppose it could be misleading. Uh, to call these events uh, the Christmas story, as if Jesus' birth is something that is primarily associated 
uh, with a holiday that takes place at this time of year. Now, sometimes we hear, we, we say, or we sing, Chris was, Christ was born on Christmas Day. And, uh, that could almost give the impression that there is such a thing called Christmas Day. There always was Christmas Day, and it just so happens that the birth of Jesus fell on this day. As if Christmas Day somehow is bigger, more significant, more important than the reality of Christ's birth on a day of which we're really not certain at all. Christmas Day is a traditional holiday in which many Christians give special attention to our Savior's birth. The actual date of December 25 probably goes back to the 3rd or 4th century, uh, and it was then uh, uh, speculated that the birth of Jesus took place around this time, although the actual day or even the actual month of the year is not revealed in Scripture. Uh, but it was associated with the winter solstice, and it was deemed an appropriate time to give special attention to the birth of Jesus Christ, and so it has come down to us as a traditional holiday. But the meaning of that birth of our Lord Jesus is not tied actually to any particular day, the exact day of his birth remaining quite unknown. And the meaning of uh, the birth of Christ is certainly not tied to Christmas cards or nativity scenes or presents or family gatherings or sweets, treats and Christmas trees and all those things, all those associations that we have with Christian Christmas. And indeed, those those associations may be loaded for us in our own experience and feelings. And they be, may be loaded with uh, beautiful thoughts and beautiful things because indeed, uh, every uh, true kind of wholesome beauty in this world is associated with Christ. But it's also true that even some of those very things can be, uh, even at this time of year, in the minds and experiences and feelings of many associated with things that they find quite depressing, depending on their circumstances. People that may have suffered a grievous loss in the past year or in the past weeks, people that are alone, people that see the materialism of everyone around them putting on a happy face while they are filled with depression and sorrow and grief. And even these associations with with Christmas can be painful and discouraging for many. But the meaning of Christ's birth does not depend upon these these accoutrements, these associations that people have, whether whether good or bad. The meaning of Christ's birth really depends on the answer to that question that indeed is is sung in a familiar Christmas carol. What child is this who is born? What child is this who is born in such a unique and humble place and put in a in a feeding trough? The manger very likely refers to an actual uh, feeding trough for cattle. Well, we're going to look at the answer to that question. And the answer to that question may be seen in a very stark contrast between this baby in a manger and an Old Testament description. And uh, we properly see this as an Old Testament description of him. 
an Old Testament description of the Christ that was given centuries before the birth of this child. A description of him as a living and glorious person. A living, glorious person in a glorious state. In glorious company. That's how I introduced Proverbs 8 that we're going to be looking at in connection with our text this morning. This uh, chapter that speaks of wisdom. The baby in a manger is divine wisdom revealed. And we're going to see that in connection with a number of contrasts that we might look at. Uh, beginning with divine wisdom, what that means, here in association, here in, here identified with a wordless baby. Now, when I say wordless, I do not, I do not mean that Jesus made no sounds. No crying he makes, uh, is sung in a Christmas carol that could be quite misleading as if Jesus somehow were not a true baby who cried when he was hungry or had a dirty diaper or needed attention of some kind or another. No, Jesus cried as an infant child. He made baby gurglings and sounds, but uh, for many, many months he spoke no words. And even this uh, provides us with an outstanding contrast because wisdom is characterized by speech. Wisdom speaks throughout, throughout the book of Proverbs, we might say. Wisdom speaks in uh, chapter 8. This is an outstanding characteristic of lady wisdom. Wisdom is depicted in, in feminine terms, but uh, as a woman who speaks, does not wisdom cry out and understanding lift up her voice? She takes her stand on the top of the high hill, by the way where the paths meet. She cries out by the gates at the entry of the city, at the entrance of the doors. To you, O men, I call, and my voice is to the sons of men. O oh, you simple ones, understand prudence, and you fools, be of an understanding heart. Listen, for I will speak of excellent things, and from the opening of my lips will come right things. For my mouth will speak truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are with righteousness. Nothing crooked or perverse is in them. They are all plain to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. This is the description of wisdom, wisdom crying out in a very public way, clearly in a very gracious way, gracious speech, true and righteous words. Words of warning, words of, of invitation, promising words. Wisdom is better than rubies and all the things one may desire cannot be compared with her. Wisdom is more valuable, more precious than any uh, presents you children might hope to unwrap from under a Christmas tree, the kinds of things that might get you excited. There's nothing that can be compared to the value of wisdom. And wisdom makes herself known in this way. Well, Jesus would speak like that publicly. Words of righteousness, 
persuasive words of grace and invitation. Grace was poured out on his lips. He spoke like no man ever spoke. That was the testimony, even of his enemies. Jesus alone matches the description of wisdom here in Proverbs in all its fullness. He is the wisdom of God. Actually, the Belgic Confession, in its Confession of the Trinity, identifies the second person of the Trinity as the eternal word and wisdom of God. Jesus Christ is wisdom embodied. Jesus Christ is the ultimate wisdom of God. Not simply as He speaks words of God, but as He reveals God in Himself. But there in the manger, this baby has not yet learned to say Abba or Daddy or Mama. And we might well ask the question, why? What does it mean? Well, it means this. It means that the Word, the eternal Word, was indeed made flesh and dwelt among us fully, completely, from the natural beginning of what it means to be flesh and blood, along with our flesh and blood. Flesh and blood that He derived from the flesh and blood of His mother. And He entered this world then as an infant child who laying in a manger could speak no words until over time, like every child, he would learn to babble and learn to form words and then ultimately sentences. He is the wisdom of God. And that wisdom is deeper than the wisdom that he would speak. It's not simply a matter of the revelation made by words, but the revelation of the wisdom of God in his own person also by who he was and and what he would do. Paul says, We preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, Christ is the revelation of divine power, saving power, and divine wisdom. It's the kind of wisdom that is despised by the world. See, that's why our world is comfortable with an infant baby. There's no threat. And in a way, that's a revelation of the graciousness of God and the nearness to which He comes to us. But he came to demonstrate weakness, not simply by his infant birth, but by his horrible death upon a cross. Something that is judged foolish. The ultimate display of contemptible weakness to the Roman world. But in his death, he is the revelation of the ultimate wisdom of God, made known for the salvation of the guilty. Christ is made For us, wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. God manifested in the flesh. That's what the shepherds saw when they looked down upon a speechless infant there in such lowly conditions. Another contrast. The everlasting God and a newborn infant. Jesus' human life began in time. It began at his conception as all human life begins. 
sometimes I joke around when people ask me how old I am and I calculate back nine months and say, yeah, I'm, I'm 63. Well, actually I'm 62 marked by years, but the time of my earthly existence began about nine months before my birth. <laughs> so I like to tweak the noses of people who see, uh, unborn infants as insignificant persons. But we, we date years after birth, and so Jesus' years were dated. He went up to the temple when he was 12 years old, and uh, he began his public ministry at around 30 years of age, we're told, in the Scripture. But those years commenced at his birth, at a specific time, even a specific time of the day. But he had a divine life before that birthday. In verse 23 of Proverbs 8, we read, I have been established from everlasting, from the beginning, before there was ever an earth. Think of the Gospel of John, the first verse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is the beginning of what? Everything other than the eternal self-existent God. And the ter eternal self-existent God was, everlastingly is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Colossians 1, verse 17 says that He is before all things, speaking of the Lord Jesus, and in Him all things consist. All things continue to exist in relationship to Him, His power by which He upholds the world. The Son was before creation. In the birth of Jesus, we have everlasting life joined to human infant life. Jesus' life as the Son of God, of course, had no beginning. Verse 22 makes that clear. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way, before his works of old, possessed, enjoyed as his own, as one always present with him, as one uh, before him. Verse uh, 24, when there was no depth, I was brought forth. Verse 25, before the hills, I was brought forth. Now, that's language that Arius used to argue against the eternal deity of Christ. But this is language which, in connection with the whole passage, even here in Proverbs, as it really is fulfilled in Lord Jesus Christ, is language that leads us rather to understand uh, the eternal generation of the Son from the Father. He was begotten, not made, not born, but there is this eternal relationship between the Father and the Son. The Son was never without the Father. And the Father was never without His Son. Those names by which the eternal uh, triune God reveals Himself are relational. And they're not relations that began in time, but they are eternal. The babe in a manger indeed is a child born. For unto us a child is born. But the babe born in a manger is a son given. A passage that speaks of the two natures of Christ in this wonderful prophecy of his coming. The eternal God, the everlasting God, 
a newborn infant. Secondly, or I should say thirdly in my notes here, the master craftsman uh, in a feeding trough. That's, as I mentioned, what a manger is. The sun was before creation, and the sun was there at creation. Reading verses 27 and onward. When he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above, when he strengthened the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters would not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him as a master craftsman. The Son of God was not only there with him, but uh, he was active beside him as an architect, as a, as a master workman, as if with a compass, marking and cutting out the circle of the earth, as though measuring the foundations of the world. And this is in harmony with what we read explicitly in the New Testament of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as being co-creator with him. Again, think of uh, the Gospel of John chapter one, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him, nothing was made that was made. Again, in Colossians chapter 1, He is before all things, in Him all things consist. The previous verse says, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. Astounding. The incarnation of the Son means that the uncreated one united in personal union with a created one. It means the creator joined with a creature. Then the one who made all things was laid in a manger. A manger which, along with absolutely everything else, actually depended for its very existence on his will and his power. And that shows, doesn't it, that his his cradle proclaims his humiliation. We're told in verse 7 of Luke chapter 2 that he was wrapped in swaddling cloths and laid in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, there's no need to, uh, to invent or to exaggerate the hardships of these circumstances for our our Lord Jesus and Joseph and Mary. That's often done. I think it's even done sometimes in the way uh, artistic imagination likes to depict the scene, right? As if uh, here's this little this little little hut somewhere out in the middle of the field, where supposedly uh, Mary gave birth to Jesus uh, without any assistance. Uh, perhaps with Joseph standing by, wringing his hands and wondering what to do. And people's imagination can run wild. And there are a lot of gifted people that can present all kinds of things as if very intriguing and full of spiritual meaning. But it's just a figment of human imagination. And uh, Sometimes the facts and the truth of the actual simplicity and the uh, 
the lack of detail is viewed as kind of a nuisance to people. It would be very unlikely that Mary received no help in giving birth to Jesus. They were going to uh, their hometown. It was a crowded place. And the culture was such that a, a, a pregnant woman, who probably had arrived already some time before, right? It's while she was there that the time came for her to be delivered. You know, again, the idea of, you know, a, a long, grueling travel on a donkey and arriving just in time to be put in a stable, They're probably placed in a, an adjoining uh, building or room to a public house. Actually, it's probably preferable than to a, a busy inn where it would be noisy and a lot going on. But it would be culturally quite... Uh, Difficult to imagine that Mary received no assistance in giving birth. We don't need to exaggerate. We don't need to invent either one way or the other, right? Where the scripture is silent. Yes, we can draw inferences from the culture and from considerations, but we ought to be careful to try to make big deals out of things that the text doesn't really call attention to at all. No doubt his birth was in most lowly circumstances. And that clearly is the intention of the Holy Spirit in revealing the truths that are recorded here. No craftsmanship was required to construct his first little bed. It's kind of like a project that a farmer might give to his son, uh, a first building project. Oh, he could build a feeding trough, uh, perhaps no great uh, skill and uh, hardly a great number of tools are required to, to make such a thing. Such was the life of the Lord Jesus he would work in wood. He was a carpenter. The carpenter's son, he's referred to himself as a carpenter. An honorable work. There are a number of you who work in wood. There's no record of anything that he made. We don't even know exactly what kind of carpenter he was in terms of the kinds of things that characterize his labor from day to day. He would wear a crown, but not a crown that was forged of gold by a craftsman as you would expect from a king, but it was a twisted of thorny wood. And he would die on a rough wooden cross. Again, an instrument of execution that's easily slapped together with few tools. The master craftsman who created the world, this world with all its detail and wonder, every aspect of it, only a fraction of which is known to us, is the handiwork of eternal wisdom. And this is the one that suffered such humiliation. Because the craftsman's greatest work is, again, incomparable to any earthly accomplishment. The craftsman's greatest work is an eternal spiritual structure, glorious in beauty that will endure through all eternity. That's the church of Jesus Christ, which he came to save, purchased by his blood. Finally, he is God's delight, now one with man. Proverbs 8 gives us a glimpse of what Jesus meant in John chapter 17 in his, his high priestly prayer, where he reads, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Jesus is about to resume 
such eternal glory that had been obscured, veiled by his incarnation, but will be again resumed at his ascension. In chapter 24, he prays, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Then I was beside him as a master craftsman, and I was daily his delight. Again, that's figurative language, right? There were no succession of days from all eternity. But the point being that in this eternal relationship of the Father and Son, there was an unending, mutual, intimate exchange of perfect love, a love that involved an absolute perfect knowledge. Yes, we're confronted with great mysteries here. What did it mean? What perfect, uninterrupted pleasure and love and fellowship is this? At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. What moved the Son to become poor? What moved Him to enter a world in human flesh? Well, actually... The last part of verse 31 tells us where it says, And my delight was with the sons of men. Again, you place this in context. There of the eternal relationship of the Father and the Son. Even before creation, there was a divine eternal purpose to save sinners. And that work would be the special work of the Son to save a race of lost people in whom he delighted. Before he came to us, he loved us. He always wanted to share his father's delight. As the father loved me, Jesus said in John chapter 15, as the father loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. The eternal son always wanted creatures who would be lost sinners to be so restored as to be admitted into some knowledge and experience of this love of the Father for His Son, which now extends to them in Him. In love and mercy to sinful people, He said, I delight to do Your will, O God. A body You have prepared for me. A body that He would enter in this mysterious miracle of incarnation through the Holy Spirit, His conception in the womb of a virgin, the assumption of real flesh and blood. The manger in Bethlehem proclaims, indeed, please with man, with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel, so that we also might behold His glory, His added glory, as the mediator who returns having finished the work that he willingly took upon himself to accomplish and that we might behold him. But God wants us to behold him now by faith. He wants to see the glory of this Savior that he has revealed so that we might indeed embrace him as the wisdom of God, that we might delight in him as the Savior, that we might 
love him and already know that mutual love. I love those who love me, loves me, wisdom says in Proverbs 8. Trust in him. Hear his voice. Hear his voice. Even crying out in the last words of this uh, passage in Proverbs. Blessed is the man who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at the posts of my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who sins against me wrongs his own soul. All those who hate me love death. Amen.